everyone. Welcome to the All About Animals Radio. We are a volunteer-run community radio station dedicated to all animals and those who advocate for them. My name is Nikita Dewan, and today we have Andrew Kelly. Dr. Kelly is the director of Freedom for Animals, one of UK's longest-running charities that's dedicated to the welfare of captive animals. They focus on a range of issues from animals captive in zoos and aquariums to those using the film industry and live animal displays. Thank you so much for joining today, Dr. Kelly. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me to take part. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. And, you know, you've been associated with animal welfare and protection for quite a while. So can you start by telling us about your background and how you got involved in this field? Yes. So I've been director of Freedom for Animals for just just under a year. Uh, I joined in December last year. Uh, and prior to that, I worked for the Irish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the ISPCA, which is Ireland's national animal welfare organisation. And I spent seven years there as the chief executive officer. Um, and during that time, uh, I successfully campaigned for an end to the use of wild animals in circuses in Ireland, and also an end to fur farming in Ireland. And we, we, we made some real steps in the right direction for animals over the years, uh, for pet animals, for farm animals, for wild animals, and for animals used in sports, entertainment, and research, uh, scientific research. So over, over the seven years, I think I achieved quite a lot for animals in Ireland. But I'm now working for Freedom for Animals, which is a UK-based organisation. Um, previous to the ISPCA, I actually worked for Humane Society International, um, working at an EU level, uh, lobbying uh, members of the European Parliament for better protection for wild animals, specifically um, animals that have become invasive in European countries and where they are being managed, that they are managed humanely uh, and that um, killing animals is is the last resort uh, and that solutions are found to prevent animals from becoming invasive in the first place. Prior to that, I worked for the RSPCA in England and Wales as head of wildlife department for two years and also as manager of one of their animal uh, wild wildlife rehabilitation centres in Cheshire. Uh, and we rehabilitated a wide range of wild animal casualties and orphaned wild animals and released them back to the wild. Um, so over the years, so I've been working in the animal welfare, animal protection sector for about 20 years. And prior to that, I was in academia. So I, I did a degree in zoology and also did a PhD in evolutionary ecology. So I've been working with animals in one way or another uh, all of my career. Wow. Yeah, you've had a lot of experience in especially different levels of advocacy, like you've worked at the academic level, you've been able to interact with policymakers, but also, you know, do on the ground work at the rehabilitation center. Um, yeah, that's very cool. And I noticed that a lot of your work is, you know, about animals in, you know, captivity and use for entertainment. And as you mentioned, right now, you're working at Freedom for Animals. So can you tell us a bit about Freedom for Animals and its mission? What kind of work do you do? And when did it start? Of course. So uh, Freedom for Animals used to be known as the Captive Animal Protection Society. It was founded in 1957 by a retired school teacher called Irene Heaton. Uh, and Irene um, was concerned about the welfare of animals, wild animals uh, kept captive 
pr predominantly in zoos, uh, and she was very concerned about the conditions that they were being kept in. So she, she formed the Captive Animal Protection Society, and over the years that has evolved into Freedom for Animals. Uh, and over that 65-year uh, period, we're actually celebrating our 65th year this year, um, uh, Freedom for Animals, uh, formerly CAPS, has um, really made some big inroads into uh, raising awareness about the plight of animals in captivity and, and also educating the public um, about some of the myths that are put forward by zoos, aquariums and other forms of captivity for animals. And there are a lot of myths involved in it. So Freedom for Animals uses undercover investigations and exposés. Uh, we use research. Uh, we, we, we are constantly researching uh, the issues surrounding captive animals. We use um, hard-hitting campaigns. We also work very closely with grassroots activists around the, the UK um, and organise protests at zoos and circuses and other exploitative um, animal events. But we also are a political lobbying organisation and we lobby politicians to, to, to make sure that laws are brought in to protect animals and where laws already exist, that they're strengthened and enforced properly. So we do a lot of lobbying work too. But above all, I suppose education is the most important thing that we do. And we are trying to educate the public, uh, particularly children, that captivity of wild animals is, is wrong, um, that there's no conservation value, there's no education value to it, and it's simply a business there to make money. So we do all those things. Um, we do focus on zoos primarily, uh, mobile zoos, um, but also aquariums, because I think they're sometimes forgotten about. Um, we also work on live animal displays, so things like falconry displays, uh, and also uh, a big problem for um, animals uh, that we work on is TV uh, media and film work. A lot of animals are trained like circus animals to perform for the media, um, and there are significant uh, protection issues around that. And we also work on the exotic pet trade because it's far too easy for people to get hold of wild animals and keep them as pets. And, you know, the vast majority of wild animals do not make good pets. Uh, and so, so we, ca we campaign against the uh, trade in wild animals, and we're calling for stronger protection for uh, animals that are being kept as pets um, in domestic environments. And, and I suppose our vision uh, and our mission would be that one day all animals, whether they're um, captive wild animals or circus animals, um, will be free, I suppose, to live their lives um, without abuse, without exploitation, um, and, and, and above all, be free. Uh, and that's why we changed our name from the Captive Animal Protection Society to Freedom for Animals, because we believe that all animals should be free to live their lives in, in the wild. Mm, yeah, yeah, I totally agree with the mission. And I think what you said about education and just raising awareness among the public, that's really important because, I mean, like you mentioned, there are many, you know, attractions that can just create a facade of, you know, this is education and conservation when they're really not providing that value. For example, your aquarium campaign. So, um, you know, while many people are aware of the problems associated with zoos, fewer people, they challenge aquariums and Freedom for Animals does work uh, regarding exposing aquarium cruelty, for example, at Sea Life. I noticed you had a page called Sea Lies where you just talked about the problems associated with it and you um, you support protests against aquariums. So can you just talk about um, what I found interesting was that you mentioned there's 
marine animals like fish, they have sentience and they're actually emotionally impacted by captivity. So can you elaborate on that? Of course. So, yeah, aquariums, I think, are often neglected and uh, animal protection organisations do focus on zoos and uh, inevitably focus on things like mammals and birds. But mm-hmm. fish and other marine animals are, are also sentient animals. We know now that because um, it used to be be believed that fish couldn't feel pain, for example. Mm-hmm. But now there's sufficient scientific evidence that shows that fish can feel pain. They form bonds with their companions um, and they can uh, they look for positive stimulation in their surroundings. So they, they, they have feelings, essentially, and I think we should treat all marine animals in that way. Um, we have intelligent species like um, octopuses um, uh, and crustaceans, lobsters, large crabs. We know that they also feel pain. And there was some research done by university uh, here in, in, in Northern Ireland, actually, um, that showed that crabs feel pain and they move away from from stimulants that they, they don't like. So um, I think we need to treat marine animals, fish, crabs, octopuses, whatever they are, with respect and recognise them as sentient beings. Even recently, um, an an experiment showed that um, goldfish, which have always been considered to have very poor memories, a recent um, uh, research showed that they um, actually have very good memories and can remember uh, um, companions, they can remember their environment and they, they, they look specifically for well-known parts of their environment. So um, let's treat um, marine animals with respect. But unfortunately, aquariums don't do that. Um, and we've been working on this issue for a number of years now, and we've done a number of undercover uh, uh, investigations. We've also done a, a, a large amount of research looking at the types of animals that are kept in aquariums. And it might come as a surprise to many people that 80% of the fish species in, or 80% of the fish in um, UK aquariums are actually taken from the wild. They're not bred in captivity. Uh, and of course, that's one of the things that zoos claim that they breed all their animals in captivity so that they can release them back to the wild. But aquariums, are um, 80% are taken directly from the wild. And we know that at every stage of that process, there is high mortality. So in the capture phase, um, there's a, a mortality of up to 30%. There's five to ten percent mortality during transportation. So, so these fish are caught all over the world. They're packaged into bags. They're packaged into tanks. They're packaged into containers, and they're shipped all over the world to aquariums. Um, which I'm sure your listeners will agree is just plain wrong. Um, but even when they get to the country where they're being exported to, there's another thirty percent. Um, mortality um, then as well. So so the overall mortality between capture and getting to the aquariums, 60 to 70% of the animals have already died. And then in the aquariums themselves, there are uh, large mortality rates. So we, um, as you said earlier, our our CLI's website, um, that exposes the the number of deaths at um, a particular aquarium in the UK called Sea Life. And over, um, I think, three or four years ago, the BBC ran a story which showed that um, over 4,500 animals had died in a single year at Sea Life 
uh, aquariums, uh, and, and the mortality rate is very, very high. So life in a tank for animals um, is, is a it's a life of deprivation. They are being removed from their familiar environment and they're being put into a fake environment which is essentially very small. Um, they're mixed with other species that they wouldn't be mixed with in, in, in the wild. Um, and that can lead to psychological damage of, of fish. And, and something that people don't really consider that fish are capable of, of feeling, but they are. So there are behaviours that you can see. You can see um, fish, for example, uh, pacing backwards and forwards or swimming backwards and forwards or swimming in circles. These are all signs that these these, these animals are stressed uh, and they don't want to be there. Um, so, so aquariums, I think, um, really need a spotlight shone on them. Um, as I say, 80% come from the wild. Um, but also in addition to that, one of the things that zoos and aquariums often say is that they are there for conservation, that they look after endangered species that are struggling in the wild so that they can be released back to the wild in, in the future. But only 2.5% of species kept in UK aquariums are actually endangered in the wild. So that blows that um, argument out of the water, if you'll excuse the pun. So... Um, so, so yeah, so we we we've shed uh, shone a light on aquariums. Uh, we believe that they need to be um, phased out, uh, and that no more animals should be taken from the wild purely just to replace the ones that die uh, um, far too early in the small tanks in which they're kept. So it's it's a, a an important part of our work. It's an important campaign for us, uh, and your listeners can can find out more on our website about it. Yeah, I think um, everything you said was very interesting because I've also um, I've noticed I've heard a lot about like stereotypical behavior in larger mammals like elephants, like head bobbing. So it's interesting to see that also extends to fish. And I think just your point about, uh, you know, just sentience and the suffering of animals, I think that's very it's a very convincing argument just because, you know, we as humans, we all feel suffering and the fact that they feel emotions just like we do, I think just makes it more important for us to extend our compassion towards uh, those animals. So, and I also read that um, I was also looking at, as you mentioned in the transportation process, uh, like you mentioned, a lot of, there's a high mortality rate. And it also mentioned that many of the wild caught fish, they affect the larger marine ecosystems like the coral reefs. Um, can you yeah. elaborate on that and how they affect the larger environment when you take them away? Yeah, so so fish are caught um, in various environments around the world and in reefs, in rivers, uh, freshwater lakes, all all over the world. Um, and taking large numbers of fish from those environments will have an impact on the the makeup of those uh, habitats and those 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 environments um and i think it's been shown that um uh, many of these environments are now suffering depletion of fish species and uh, numbers of individuals uh, within species as well and then of course we have things like climate change which are affecting coral reefs anyway we've seen bleaching in the great barrier reef for example so they've got this, uh, and of course, the biodiversity crisis. So we've got this um, double, almost triple whammy now where um, climate change is affecting animals, loss of biodiversity is affecting them. Um, and then, of course, we're taking animals from the wild simply to put them in a tank to entertain people uh, around the world. Um, and, and it just seems to me that it's absolutely 
Um, it, it's not the right thing to do, uh, and we should be focusing on conserving wild species in situ. But of course, most zoos and aquariums, uh, although they claim to uh, carry out in situ conservation, that's a very, very small propor uh, proportion of their overall expenditure goes on in situ conservation. And even the best in inverted commas zoos, um, less than 5% of their expenditure is in in situ con uh, conservation. Uh, and the worst, um, of course, don't spend anything on in situ conservation because they're only there to entertain people and make money. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think that motive really just ties back to the value of entertainment. And um, that just brings me to uh, another one of your campaigns in general against festive events and mobile zoos. So can you talk about the use of reindeers and wild animals for the entertainment of children and how that plays out and what your organization is doing to address it? Yeah, of course. So every year at this time of the year um, around, the, around the world, many um, in many countries, I suppose, um, festive events are organised um, and many of them will use live animals such as reindeer, donkeys, uh, owls, uh, camels, even penguins have been used in some of these festive events which are often held either in city centre squares or in shopping shopping centres, shopping malls. Um, and the, the environment for these animals is very poor uh, during these events. Uh, and we um, campaign uh, for those events to go animal free, essentially. So some of these animals are transported for very long distances. So here in the UK, for example, um, reindeer are transported from um, Scotland, uh, the Cairngorms in Scotland, as far south as Cornwall in the southwest of England. Uh, a, a distance of over 700 miles. And we know transportation for semi-wild animals and like reindeer is stressful. You have the, 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 the transportation itself, you have the handling of the animals, they have to have regular stopovers um, because it's such a long journey. Um, then when they get there, they're put into small pens or tiny enclosures. They are subjected to bright lights and noise in the shopping centre or in the streets. Um, and, and then worst of all, of course, they're forced to interact with people. They're either forced to do parades down the high street or they're forced to uh, interact with often children. And um, children can often um, be loud and, and excited and perhaps um, that is likely to stress the animals. And we know that reindeer don't thrive in these conditions and we know that they're very stoic animals, so they don't show that they're feeling stressed. Um, and that's a problem because if, if, if they're not showing external signs of stress, then their handlers won't remove them from the situation and they get more and more stressed. And we know that uh, that leads to a reduced immune system and can lead to disease and even death of these, these animals. We've also seen uh, in the past penguins being used coming from small zoos, um, Fortunately, that doesn't happen too often. But last year, we did have um, camels being used. Um, and in the in the UK, camels are designated as dangerous wild animals. So the owners have to have a license to keep them. Um, uh, 
But these are dangerous wild animals. They're unpredictable. And yet they can walk them down the aisle in a church for a nativity play, uh, um, which, of course, is ludicrous. Um, so we've been campaigning for a number of years now to, to try and reduce the numbers of animals being used in, in such events. We Every year we make a list of those events that are uh, advertising that they're going to be using um, live animals. We contact them, we explain why that's a bad idea uh, and try to persuade them to go animal free. Some do, some don't, um, but we have had quite good success. So um, this year we've already written to over 150 events that um, either we know are going to use animals or have used animals in the past. And of those, um, uh, about 35 or so have already informed us that they won't be using animals and we'll keep contacting the rest until we find out. But we also try to uh, persuade local authorities who are responsible for licensing such events um, not to allow those events to go ahead on public land. They can't do anything about them on private land, um, but they can ban them on public land. So we campaign to ask local authorities, um, local councils, not to allow such things to go ahead. Uh, and over the years, we've had some success with that, with some local authorities introducing bans on use of live live animals like reindeer. So we're in that process now. Uh, we're, we're almost in the middle of November, where a lot of uh, events are being announced. And we are doing whatever we can to try and persuade them uh, either to cancel the event or to go animal free. And, and there are lots of different options for these events to go animal free. They can use animatronics. They can use uh, statue parades. Um, they can use virtual reality things. So there are lots and lots and lots of options. Uh, and we do try to support those events that go animal free and show the benefits of that. And and if, if, if you go to our website, you'll see a map now uh, in our festive events page, uh, an interactive map which has uh, red lights for those that, th those events that are using animals and green lights for those that are not. And we're encouraging people to go to the events that don't use live animals. Um, so, so we're working on that at the moment. Um, and um, I've got no doubt that we'll see many more events go animal free this year. Right. And uh, what about mobile zoos? Would you say the you know, this environment of large crowds and stress during transportation, is it similar for those? Yeah, so mobile zoos, um, again, are another issue that we work um, extensively on. Um, when you think about a large fixed site zoo, um, they are licensed under the Zoo Licensing Act and they've got a number of standards that they must come up to. Animals in mobile zoos uh, have less protection, essentially. And there are literally hundreds of mobile zoos in the UK, uh, and of course, many thousands across the world, probably. Um, and the, the problem is that the animals that are used, and that's often things like reptiles, snakes, um, iguanas, uh, small mammals like meerkats, um, birds like owls, birds of prey, and so on. Um, they are often kept in conditions at the, the home base of the mobile zoo company in poor conditions. And we've had a number of occasions where we've done undercover investigations where, where we've found poor conditions um, that, of course, the public don't see. The public only see the nice animals turning up at the, the mobile zoo event. That might be a birthday party. It might be an advertising event in a shopping centre again. And, and the problem is, again, with transportation, handling, noise, lights, excited people, the, the animals are often handed round children, handed round adults, they're 
there's these are wild animals of course wild reptiles um, um well, even if they've been kept in even if they've been bred in captivity they are still essentially wild animals um and they are handled by people and we know that that's stressful for these animals and so so we um again um use our list of undercover investigations and exposés uh, we um, educate the public we ask them to pledge not to visit a mobile zoo not to book a mobile zoo for things like birthday parties. We uh, have been working to try to get local authorities to ban mobile zoos in their local authority area with some success. Um, and um, I, I, and also um, we lobby for better protection for them. So uh, two or three years ago, there was a new piece of legislation introduced in England uh, called the the Animal Welfare Licensing of Activities Involving Animals Regulations uh, mm -hmm. 2018. And, and it's, a, it's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, essentially this legislation was brought in to, to uh, try and protect animals that are being used in exhibitions, displays, which would include mobile zoos. Um, but we don't believe that the legislation is good enough because um, there's a real lack of consistency in terms of inspection regimes um, across different local authorities. There's over 350 local authority areas in, in, in the UK. There's a real lack of consistency between them and how they inspect the animals. The inspectors are often uh, environmental health professionals, so they have no training or real no, no real knowledge of animal behaviour or the welfare needs of different species of wild animal. Um, so, so that the, the law itself, um, although we obviously want to see the laws protecting animals, we don't believe that the law is good enough um, to protect animals in mobile zoos, uh, and we are calling for change on that. Um, but yeah, at mobile zoos, um, uh, I think some people see them as kind of benign fun um but it's not fun for the animals um you know wild animals don't want to be passed around from mm -hmm. person to person and there's also a public health uh, element to it as well we we know that um, certain reptile species can carry uh, uh, campylobacter and salmonella uh, and um we often see these kind of events with reptiles with no hand washing facilities for members of the public so they are putting the public at risk as well as the animals um, and you know, a few years ago, we did have what one um, uh, mobile zoo company, uh, actually a, a member of staff, um, contacted us, uh, a whistleblower essentially, to say that the animals were being kept in appalling conditions. Um, and um, we uh, worked with the RSPCA and the police um, who eventually seized a large number of animals and the person was prosecuted um, with 34 offences under the Animal Welfare Act. So there are significant problems um, and um, hopefully our uh, work will shed a light on this uh, and will persuade more people to shy away from them, not to book mobile zoos, not to attend them. Um, and also, hopefully, we will um, persuade more local authorities to ban them. We're in the process at the moment of doing a, a research project on this. Um, so we've written to uh, over 350 local authorities seeking information on licenses that have been issued, uh, mm -hmm. uh, looking for information on the inspections that were carried out and how those inspections were carried out. And we'll be publishing a report on it next year. Oh, that's really cool. Um, yeah, I look forward to that report. Um, and I think that's interesting. I wasn't aware of, you know, the public health concerns um, with mobile zoos before. And you mentioned that you've had 
good success in your engagements with uh, relatively good success with licensing licensing companies. So I was wondering, what is the recept, uh, receptivity of kids? Are they generally open to this change and the alternatives? And just related to that, um, what do you think is the role of education in conservation and um, you know freedom for animals, um, how it's promoting that? Well, um, education is absolutely key, of course. Um, and uh, you know, I, I remember when I was a child, I would have been brought to the zoo. I would have been brought to an aquarium. Um, I can't remember, but I probably was at some point brought to a mobile zoo as well. But I always thought when I visited these places that, you know, seeing an animal in a cage didn't seem right to me. Uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I'm a keen bird watcher. So I get out into the countryside a lot and look at wild animals, um, really wild animals. Um, uh, and I, I just knew from a very early age that keeping animals in cages wasn't right. Um, and I suppose the difficulty is getting that message out to children um, because they will inevitably be taken to these places by their parents because it's an easy day out. Um, they won't really learn anything um, because there's very little education value. You only have to stand at an exhibit in a zoo or an aquarium for 10 minutes uh, and see how many people stop and read the information that's there. Uh, very few of them do. Um, and, and I think there's also evidence now that... Um, you know, a, a week or so after having visited one of these places, there's no recollection of any information that they were given. So um, I, I guess what Freedom for Animals and other animal protection organisations want to do is to really get the opportunity to tell children um, the, the reality of, of, of places like zoos and aquariums. Um, and that's difficult because um, it's very resource dependent. If you want to get into schools to talk to people, you have to have a large number of people, volunteers that can go into all the hundreds, thousands of schools to talk to thousands of children. So what we would like to do is to develop an online education system where we can essentially provide the teaching materials to the teachers um, and they're the experts in, in, in teaching. So uh, if we can provide them with the resources downloadable from the website, then hopefully they'll be able to educate the, the children. But it is difficult because people over the years, I mean, zoos have been around now since Victorian times. Uh, aquariums, not quite as long, but, but almost. And I think people have become conditioned to believe that that everything's fine in the zoos and aquariums, that that the animals are all well looked after, that they're fed and watered and they have a lovely life. Um, but nothing could be further from the truth. You know, we, we know that um, there's high mortality rates. We know that they overbreed uh, animals in zoos. We know that they, they kill the surplus animals because they've, they, they don't have the right genes, for example. We know that they mutilate uh, birds to stop them from escaping. Um, and so there are all these problems with zoos that nobody is hearing about um, because it's very difficult to get that message out to children. And that's where we really need to be starting because this is a generational shift we need to we need to do. Um, we need to get children growing up saying, I don't want to go to the zoo because I know what goes on there. Um, so, so that's what we would like to do in terms of education. Yeah, I think, uh, like you said, like the idea of just zoos, they're very ingrained in our lives. And just, I mean, just using animals on a day-to-day -day basis. I know um, when I first read about using the reindeers in, um, for Christmas events, like at first I wouldn't have thought 
I thought it was just, you know, a f- I would associate it with just like positive memories. But now that I'm thinking about it and I read on your website, um, like I didn't know about their problems. So I think that um, that aspect of education is really important and building that compassion at a young age. And um, I also wanted to ask about your um, fight for flight campaign. Uh, can you talk a bit about the issues that birds also face in captivity? Yeah, and again, this is another thing that zoos keep quiet for obvious reasons. Um, so anybody who has visited a zoo uh, will will know that they often keep um, large birds like flamingos, uh, cranes, storks, even geese and ducks. Um, and they're usually um, on a large sort of pool area. Um, sometimes it's an enclosed area. And sometimes it's an open area. And people often wonder, well, why don't they fly away if it's an open area? Um, and the reality is that they can't fly away because they've actually had part of their wings cut off when they were when, when they were a few days old. This is one of the best kept secrets that zoos have is that they, uh, they, they mutilate the birds to prevent them from escaping. And uh, this is called pinioning. It's uh, not legal for uh, poultry being held on farms. But it is sadly legal in the UK for zoos to pinion certain bird species um, to prevent them from escaping. Uh, and that consists of literally cutting off a part of the bird's wing with a pair of scissors or a knife. Um, it won't grow back. The birds um, are robbed of their most basic behaviour for most birds, which is flight. Um, uh, and essentially, that's why they, they don't fly away, because the reality is uh, if they were in an open enclosure and they hadn't been mutilated, they would escape. They would fly away because they don't want to be there. Um, and it's a, it's, 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 there's a, a real lack of transparency in zoos about this because they don't want people to know this because it, again, um, goes against the conservation and the welfare uh, message that they continually put out. Um, so we are trying to uh, change that. Um, we have been campaigning on this issue for, again, many years, uh, and we believe that pinioning of birds in zoos should be prohibited um, uh, and that the that if they can't be kept without having to do that, then they shouldn't be getting kept in captivity at all. Um, so we've been working on that for a while. We published a report a few years ago, and we are currently lobbying um, for change in that area. Um, unfortunately, it's always uh, it's often an uphill uh, struggle um, because zoos have got a very powerful lobbying voice too, um, and sadly they don't want to stop cutting off birds' wings. Yeah, I saw um, that some even do it illegally rather than having qualified vets. They yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it is, it is a, a veterinary procedure, and only a vet can do it. But we we know that some zoos, uh, it's still a lay person that does it, uh, and it's also done without any anaesthetic or pain relief, um, uh, which obviously is is cruel as well. So, because it will be a painful procedure, any mutilation like that will be painful. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that's terrible. Just the fact that. I mean, it, like the bird can never fly again and can never be released to the wild. And um, your organization does focus a lot on, um, you know, captive animals and there are many options for them. For example, you know, uh, sanctuaries and retirement centers, just 
Um, mm. Those are for larger mammals, but also in general. I wanted to know just what was your, what is your opinion on rewilding or the training of animals to survive back in their wild habitats? Do you think that's a feasible option? Well, I think rewilding is very, very important as part of our uh, a global uh, approach to the biodiversity crisis. Um, you know, he, here in um, where I am at the moment in, in Ireland, it, um, less than 5% of Ireland um, is still considered to be wild, um, very heavily, um, uh, um, very heavy ag- agriculture, um, dairy and, and, and beef farming, pig farming, sheep farming. Um, and we've lost a lot of our wildlands, not just in Ireland, but ar- around the world. We've seen the the, the, the Amazon has been, been decimated even over the last few years. Um, and I think rewilding is absolutely vital, um, not just in regenerating habitats um, and environments, but also in bringing wild animals back to these habitats, whether that's animals that have been lost from certain areas being reintroduced, um, or whether it's to get to a stage where we no longer have animals in captivity because we have actually done what zoos say they want to do, which is release animals back to the wild. But few zoos and very few animals, few zoos release animals back to the wild. And and even those that do, it's a tiny, tiny number of animals that are released back to the wild. So I think rewilding is absolutely vital. Um, In terms of uh, training animals to be able to survive in the wild, this is something... I did a little bit of work on when I worked for the RSPCA in the Wildlife Rehabilitation Centre. We dealt with a lot of wildlife casualties. We dealt with a lot of orphaned wild animals, uh, which we would hand rear and then release back to the wild. And uh, one thing that we developed over the years was the idea that you have to give animals the opportunity to express their normal behaviours whilst they're still in captivity um, so that when they are released, they have the knowledge they need to be able to survive and integrate back into the, the, the into the wild. So things like when we were raising um, fox cubs, for example, we would make sure that they had plenty of places to to play, to hide, to learn to interact with each other. Um, give them opportunities to forage as they would do in the wild, so that when they are ready to be released, they can be soft released, um, and, and and they are ready. To be able to survive, and we've shown, we showed at that time that um, uh, that worked. Um, we also um, rehabilitated things like birds of prey, um, bats, uh, and so on. And again, we gave them opportunities to make sure they were able to fly effectively, to make sure they were able to hunt prey, uh, and so on. Um, and we were able to follow them for a while out in the wild using radio tracking and so on to show that they were able to survive. So animals can be trained to be released back to the wild and to be integrated into their communities. Um, And I think that's something that zoos should be doing more of. Obviously, we've seen people like Damien Aspinall who are kind of moving in that direction, who want to release animals back to the back to the wild after having a a lifetime in a zoo. Um, But the the numbers of animals um, involved at the moment are very small. And what we'd like to see is zoos transitioning from being a zoo with paying visitors and all that kind of stuff to being proper sanctuaries where 
visitor interactions are extremely limited, where breeding is stopped and so on, and where animals are given the opportunity to express normal behaviours and, and be assessed for release back to the wild, um, if, if at all possible. And if it's not possible, then they live in a sanctuary where their needs are properly met. Um, so, for example, the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, GFAS, um, has a limited number of sanctuaries at the moment around the world. But we would like to see zoos moving to becoming GFAS accredited sanctuaries um, and perhaps n not only uh, releasing the animals back to the wild, if, if at all possible, but also um, perhaps providing more space, more space and facilities for animals that have been seized from the illegal trade in wild animals. So we often hear about um, uh, animals being seized by authorities in different countries around the world. Um, for various reasons, they often can't be released back to the wild because they don't actually know where they came from. So wouldn't it be great if they could go to accredited sanctuaries, um, whether they were zoos previously or, or, or set up as accredited sanctuaries, get their welfare needs met, um, but also with a view to getting them released back to the wild in, in, in due course. And I think that's the way we would like to see things moving. And, and, and I think um, hopefully um, we'll see zoos um, transitioning, or at least some zoos transitioning to that kind of model in the future. Yeah, definitely. I think um, what you said about, you know, just the transition and phasing out of zoos is really important um, where it just it doesn't it doesn't focus on public exhibition and entertainment, but more on um, just attending to their natural needs. And I mean, it is a gradual process. So um, I guess, you know, for now, just provide even zoos can you know provide that enrichment or opportunity, like you mentioned, so that it may be a possibility in the future. And um, yeah, so yeah, thank you for your perspective on that. That was very interesting. And uh, you're also, your organization also has something called Shine a Light Program where you talk about, I thought the message was really important about, you know, animals can get lost in numbers and the importance of, you know, highlighting yeah. individual stories and activism. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so our, our Shine a Light Program, uh, I, I think, you know, as you say, there's thousands of animals in zoos across the world. Um, and I think sometimes we forget that they are individual animals. Um, zoos talk about species and protecting the species. and um, But we know that individual animals have individual personalities. Some, for example, may be inquisitive. Some might be a little bit shy. We know that they form bonds with with friends and companions. Um, so what we wanted to do was really highlight, using some case studies, um, that animals are individuals and that we should treat them as individuals and not as species. Um, and so we we and again, your listeners can have a look at our website. But we we, we have six um, different case studies. Um, the first of those is Josh, who's a capuchin monkey who was a victim of the pet trade. The second is Nigel, who's a puma, who was a victim of the TV, media and film trade. Um, the third one was Sasha, who's a meerkat, who, who was a victim of the mobile zoo trade that we talked about earlier. Um, uh, Lulu, uh, who's a green sea turtle, is a victim of the aquarium trade. Uh, and finally, Zaire, uh, sorry, uh, Katie, the elephant, who's a, a victim of the zoo industry. She is uh, an, an elephant that lives in Blackpool Zoo. Uh, and Zaire is also, uh, Zaire's a, a, a female gorilla um, who's been in captivity for 45 years 
and is also a victim of the, the zoo industry. So all of these animals um, have different stories uh, of how their lives turned out. Um, Josh the monkey um, was uh, kept as a pet and passed from one owner to another owner. And he was so stressed uh, that the, the, the last owner gave him to a small um poor zoo, um, really poor conditions. And he was there for three years and he was so stressed that he actually bit off um, part of his own tail. Um, fortunately, um, he was rescued by our friends and colleagues at Wild Futures Monkey Sanctuary and he, he's now living there. So that that had a, a, a reasonably happy ending and he's now in a proper sanctuary where his welfare needs can be met. Um, Nigel the Puma, um, Nigel was used for filming for various things, adverts, films, TV shows. Um, and when he started to go blind, he was essentially given away by the uh, TV media company, uh, the, the, the animal company that provided him. Um, uh, he was given to a zoo where um, he uh, went blind and um, uh, and lived out the rest of his life. Um, but of course, pumas range huge areas of the Rocky Mountains down into South America. Um, and zoos really cannot provide uh, an appropriate environment for animals like big cats. They simply can't do it. Um, you know, these animals roam for thousands of kilometres in, in, in the wild. And yet in zoos, they are kept in tiny enclosures. Or in this case, uh, an animal entertainment company kept in a very small enclosure between um, media events. Um and just to give another one, one of the, the examples I gave there of Katie the elephant. So Katie's spent 54 years in Blackpool Zoo, taken as an infant um, from the wild, shipped across to England uh, back in the early 1970s, um, ripped away from her mother. Um, and we know that elephants form very strong social bonds and um, maternal instincts is very strong. Um, which in itself was animal cruelty to take that the, the baby elephant away from its mother. Um, she spent a long time in that zoo on her own. Um, she did have a companion for a number of years who eventually had to be euthanized uh, because of severe arthritis, which was a direct result of being in captivity. She spent three years on her own there um, after that, and she now has three other elephants uh, keeping her company except she doesn't really want to be in their company she she wants to stay on her own um and you know it really is i think very sad that elephants in zoos around the world uh, are kept like this um we know that elephants don't thrive in captivity we know that they'll lead shorter lives than their wild counterparts we know that they'll have poor reproductive success compared to wild elephants we know that they'll have um, a higher rate of stillbirths, higher rate of infant mortality, and they'll go through their lives with significant health problems, including foot, muscle, and joint problems because they're living in a completely alien environment. And Blackpool Zoo actually spent five million pounds um, building a new enclosure for elephants, and it's still a fraction of the area that these elephants would uh, travel uh, in, in, in the wild. Um, they simply can't provide an appropriate environment, and it's time that elephants were completely removed from zoos. Um, the, the, the scientific evidence is there. 
they don't thrive and they shouldn't be getting kept in zoos. We're in the process in the UK where DEFRA, the government department responsible for zoos, uh, is looking at the evidence after a 10-year process of, of getting the information. They are now considering phasing out elephants from zoos. Um, but sadly, we still see around the world elephants being taken from the wild, babies taken from their mothers and shipped across the world to, to zoos um, in, in various countries. But it's time to stop um, and it's time to phase elephants out from zoos. So I, 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 I can... I could give other examples, uh, Nikita, but um, I would, would be here all day. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, yeah, these stories are so saddening. I think it just really shows how these animals are used in exchange as if they're props. And um, especially what you mentioned about, you know, just elephants and not, and breaking their social bonds can have um, an impact on not only the elephant that's caught, but also their um natural they're not because their natural um social structure um, from the wild itself so um i also think it's interesting that you know there are a variety of animals that your organization focuses on i feel like often animal activism would focus on larger uh, select mammals you know pandas or elephants so it's nice to see a variety and i think just in general this discussion has been very insightful and um, I think it's also unique that your unique that your organization talks about issues which the public may not immediately associate with cruelty, like animals in mobile zoos and um, like television industries. That's not something that's discussed very often. So I think it's really important that uh, you know you spotlight those um, challenges. And we'll definitely link the website uh, for all the things you've been mentioning, so our listeners can go check that out. So I just wanted to end by asking, how can the public help your cause? Do you have any current programs, social media handles you would like to share? So the public can obviously visit our website and um, thank you for um, sharing the website in in, in due course. Um, uh, Also, they can find details there of how to donate to support our work. Um, but they can also um, volunteer for us um, uh, and help with our grassroots um, um, protests around the country at zoos and uh, circuses and so on. Uh, and they'll also find details there on how to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the moment. So please do visit our website and please do follow us on social media. Music.